Hello. And welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we dive into lesser-known stories about the early American presidents and their families. I'm Howard. I'm Jess, his wife. Yeah, last I checked. (laughs) And this week, we've got our second guest. I had so much fun talking to Dr. Kara Finnegan, author of the new book, Photographic Presidents, Making History from Daguerreotype to Digital. I'm just excited for this one because I was so blown away by the last one. Right. Um, First, though, I want to share a story about one of my favorite presidential photographs. It's not about an early president, but it fits so well into a sort of theme that has developed this season. I'm not sure if you've noticed something that keeps coming up this season. Pets? Um, Animals? Birds? It's not a bird. Thankfully. You're so traumatized by me telling you hours of bird stories. It's kind of similar to, you know, waterboarding. <laughs> I'm just telling you You know stories. how terrorists wow. are, you know, when someone's tortured? Thank God you don't review our podcast. Okay, so that's how I felt about the, board, the bird stories. That just kept coming and coming and there was no room for air. Uh, this is not about a bird. Oh, good. But it's about an animal. This is a photograph of a president and a very different animal. A dog? No, an enraged animal. A a raccoon? It's a photograph that this president's press team never wanted you to see. Really? Let me set the scene. What year are we in? April 1979. Okay. This is recent. This is much more recent. Than the Founding Fathers. Yeah. You're diving outside your comfort level here. A little bit. for For this little story, yeah. Okay. President Jimmy Carter was taking a little R&R. Mm-hmm. He was fishing all by himself in a little boat on a lake close to his home in Plains, Georgia. Mm-hmm. His security people and the White House photographer, they were all on the shore. No one was with him on that boat. And he was a sitting duck. Oh, no. Oh, no. What's going to happen to him in th- out there? That's when Carter heard something in the water behind him. A crocodile? Hmm. <laughs> He turned and saw an animal frantically swimming toward the boat. It was distressed and enraged, and it wanted to get in the boat. It was a swamp rabbit. What's a swamp rabbit? Is it different than a regular rabbit? I'm glad you asked. Swamp rabbits are about twice the size of your regular rabbit. Twice the size. Mm -hmm. And they live in swamps. What, What is a rabbit doing in a swamp? It's a wild rabbit. But it's large. Yeah, bigger than your average rabbit. It's like the Princess Bride version of a rabbit. Yeah, or Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (laughs) That was a small rabbit. It just was lethal. Maybe mix the two. (laughs) Okay, so lethal, large rabbit. This rabbit, according to Carter, was probably fleeing from some hounds. Carter used his oar to splash water at it, and it swam away. Thankfully, that was the extent of his encounter with this wild beast because... If not for his quick thinking, who knows what might have happened. That's it? That's the story? That was just the beginning of his problems, though, when it came to that rabbit. Okay, so he splashed some water on the rabbit and it left. That's correct. That's, okay. Seems like a nothing burger, right? Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) Now, Carter had a reputation for honesty. This was a big deal after the nation was, like, crawling out uh, from under Nixon and the Watergate scandal. Restoring integrity to the White House was key. And Carter's reputation for honesty was important to him, too. Mm -hmm. So when he told his staff about what happened, 
with this wild swimming rabbit. And they were like, okay. <laughs> he asked if they believed him. They, they're like, stop hitting up the liquor cabinet there. <laughs> they had serious doubts that rabbits could even swim. So they thought he was either a liar or delusional. <laughs> that's, um, that's not cool. Not cool, no. And he couldn't let it go. He was going to. Well, no, of course he couldn't because no. his whole, he's the president and his whole team <laughs> is tell, calling him crazy. Well, because the swamp rabbit was like attacking him. It's, you know, it's a little out there. But he, you don't just come back from a, a calm paddle on the lake with stories like that. A normal person doesn't. Uh, okay. So are you calling him, delu- is he delusional? Let's find out. Oh, wow. Are you saying he might have made it up? We're talking about photographs here. Okay. So let's see where we end up. Okay, fine. I won't spoil anything. How could you? Uh, I don't know. You can't, you got can't my spoil ways. anything if you tried. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I think that's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. So he couldn't let it go. He was going to prove them wrong. He asked the White House photographer if he happened to capture the incident. And he did. <laughs> so that photo was printed out. And it showed Carter splashing water with his oar. Mm-hmm. And it showed something swimming away. Okay. He showed it to his team and they were like, mm, what's that thing in the water? I don't know. We don't think that's a rabbit. So he ordered an enlargement. That enlargement showed the unmistakable ears of a rabbit. Wow. So okay. Carter was vindicated. Yeah. If only the story had ended there. Four months after Carter's near-death experience on that boat, (laughs) his press secretary, Jody Powell, was having drinks with a reporter from the Associated Press, Mm -hmm. a guy named Brooks Jackson. Jody got to talking and happened to mention the killer rabbit story. (laughs) Brooks probed him for more details, more drinks. No, it was leaked. The next thing you know, the story was everywhere, including (sighs) on the front page of the Washington Post. Oh, my gosh. Here is a picture of that article that appeared on the Washington Post. Um, It's got a picture that's an awesome parody of Jaws with a giant rabbit coming up from below to attack the boat. It says pause, uh-huh. but it, yeah, but it's supposed to be Jaws because it's the same font. But the picture didn't remind me of Jaws well, until yeah. you said that. It's hard to make a rabbit look like a shark. <laughs> but the rabbit looks very cartoonish and not threatening at all. And Carter looks, it's not flattering for either the rabbit or Carter. No, the story is meant to be ridiculous. It starts out saying, a killer rabbit attacked President Carter on a recent trip to Plains, Georgia, penetrating Secret Service security and forcing the chief executive to beat back the beast with a canoe paddle. Beat back the beast. Good stuff, right? Well, that is an exaggeration, just a bit. The story... But the press never does that, so <laughs> they're allowed one. <laughs> the story was not good for Carter. It made him seem weak, seeing a bunny rabbit as a threat. Well, he just, he beat back the beast, though. That's, you know, that's a winner. If the beast had been, I don't know, a bull. (laughs) And it also showed that his own staff questioned his honesty. Mm. This was during his campaign for re-election against the powerhouse Ronald Reagan, who was all about showing himself as a big, strong, tough guy. It became a nationwide joke at exactly the wrong time for Carter. That is so screwed up. Who was it who leaked the story? Uh, It was his own press secretary over drinks. Oh, his own press secretary screwed him over. Yeah. Wow. In that article, Brooks Jackson had asked for the photograph from the White House, but was denied. He wrote that the White House withheld pictures of the fishing trip and refused yesterday to make available pictures of the encounter with the rabbit. And he quoted a White House spokesman who said, 
There are just certain stories about the president that must forever remain shrouded in mystery. (laughs) So dramatic. Right. So the Carter administration never released that photo of the rabbit to the public. Mm -hmm. But it was White House property. So when Reagan won the election, the Reagan administration released that photo. What? And I'm glad they did because it's pretty great. Is it really that great? You know, I mean, that it exists is great. You're definitely going to have to zoom in to see what's in the water. This doesn't look that dramatic, first of all. This is true. Oh, I see it. Yeah, that's a rabbit. It's far away, though. Well, it's swimming away, and he's splashing it with the oar. We probably missed the worst of it. Why is this such a big deal? I don't understand. Yeah. This photo is also up at plodpod.com and our Instagram at plodding through. It's just a rabbit swimming away, and he, it looks like he's splashing it with an oar. I don't understand why it has become such a big deal. It looks like a sizable rabbit, though, I would say, right? Yeah, it's large. Yeah. So swamp rabbits I mean, but, are, are nothing to mess with. I've got a tight 20-minute chunk of swamp rabbit stories if you've got time today. We don't need to. <laughs> no, no, I'm okay have, with that. Okay, no. You know, jot them down. Okay. I'll look over them over some coffee tomorrow. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Yeah. Um, on a post-it. Something <laughs> easily crumpable so I could easily. Crumpable. Wow. Crump, something I can crump up easily. Oh, my goodness. Or fold. I could fold it before yeah. putting it in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It just beat the beast i mean it's the beast it's not a beast it's a rabbit it's a swamp rabbit (laughs) and he i mean and he splashed it yeah i don't know i feel like an encounter with a potato bug in our home was bigger oh my god (laughs) sorry the look of trauma came back i've triggered you i'm sorry all i know is that (laughs) i all i know is that encounter was probably more traumatic Oh, for then, sure. Because Jimmy Carter was pretty nonchalant about it. Yeah. He just related the story of, oh, yeah, this thing happened. Um, and his staff was like, mm, okay, whatever. Yeah. It just seems kind of unfortunate that it turned into what it did. Yeah. Got to watch out for those cameras yeah. and those rabbits. There's one more photograph on a very different note that I want to show you before we get to the interview because we talk about it in the mm-hmm. interview. This is William Henry Harrison. Take a look at that. Oh my goodness, what a face. Move on now to the next picture. Okay. That's a painting of William Henry oh, Harrison. It's a nice painting. Yeah. It definitely um, captured him. Yeah, now move on to the next picture. That's the two of them side by side. Okay. What do you see when you look at both of them? Very large nose. A weird bow tie that looks more like a hole. They look the same, except one's a painting, one's an old photograph with spotted light on the film. That's right. They look pretty similar, huh? Yes. Okay. There's some question as to which of these came first. What? What do you mean? Do you think it's just a coincidence that they look so similar? Um, I mean, I would assume that the painting was done first because he looks a little bit younger in the painting. And the photograph was done later because photography was probably developing. (laughs) No Hmm. pun intended. Okay. You're insinuating that the photograph came first? Do you think someone used the photograph to make the painting? That's one theory. The other option is that you're not looking at a photograph of William Henry Harrison. I'm looking at a painting? You're looking at a photograph of a painting of William Henry Harrison. Oh, you think this is a photograph of the painting? I mean... They're in the same angled position. 
and obviously the same suit. I mean, I'd really have to compare closer, but the hair looks a little different to me. But that might just be the shadows of the photograph. He looks a little younger in the painting to me. You can see more wrinkles in the photograph. And it may be because of the shadows, but the photograph shows more depth to his wrinkles. And um, But it's hard to tell because of the spotted light all over the photograph. Okay, yeah. We'll get to the bottom of the story of those two pictures. Is there an answer? There's an answer. Oh, there is? Yes. Dr. Kara Finnegan is a professor at the University of Illinois, mm -hmm. my alma mater. Cool. Her research and teaching explore the role of photography as a tool for public life. And her new book, Photographic Presidents, Making History from Daguerreotype to Digital, looks at the history of photography and the role that presidents have played in it since the beginning. Wow. We talk about that history and how people dealt with this new technology, even how it related to spiritualism and another of my favorite presidential photographs. Well, that's cool. I can't wait to hear the interview. Welcome to the show, uh, Kara Finnegan. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. You have a book called Photographic Presidents, Making History from Daguerreotype to Digital that just came out. And it's a fascinating look at, at the history of photography and its links to the U.S. presidents and how they kind of fed off of each other. What made you want to write about this specific topic? I really came at this project from the perspective of photography history. That's my area. I study visual communication and the history of photography. And I did some work on Lincoln in my previous book and got really interested in not just photographs of Lincoln, but conversations about photography that were circulating around photographs of Lincoln in the 19th century. I thought that was really interesting. And then a few years later, I designed a course where one of the units of the course, we looked at how presidents use photography to build their political image. And not long after that, Barack Obama was elected and became president, and the White House started putting photographs of him that they were making up on social media in, in more or less real time on a, a, a photography site called Flickr. And I started working through these with my students. And I realized my students needed some kind of historical touchstone. I wanted to find some kind of survey of the history of presidents' relationships with photography. And I didn't find anything really um, that would work. And so I thought, well, this is really interesting. I've already done some Lincoln. I'm interested in that. You know, maybe I could write the book that I couldn't find for my students. Oh, that's really fascinating. And yeah, I think about looking at all the, the portraits of the early presidents, the paintings, and how much that can tell you about them. And then you see that sort of shift into their official portrait being like a, a photograph as well. Now, you talk about John Quincy Adams in the book and how I believe he is the president that we have the, the earliest surviving daguerreotype of. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. He was a former president, uh, sitting congressman when, when the image was made. But that image that we have is the oldest image we have of a president. Yeah. And he's, I mean, he's a particular favorite of mine. I mean, he just kind of jumps off the page of his diaries and his letters. And the fact that we have a photograph of him staring back at us to kind of reinforce those words. How did he react to getting his photograph taken? I had so much fun with John Quincy Adams in this project. I was working with the elderly John Quincy Adams. I was working with a guy who had a lot of thoughts and feelings to share in his diary, which he kept every day. And he um, didn't hold back his opinions at all. 
Um, and he was also very sad that he was getting old and kind of decrepit and falling apart. And so what I started doing with Adams was I realized really quickly, okay, he's important because this oldest photograph we have is of him. But what's really important about him, from my perspective, is that he kind of became my guide to understanding how people who were encountering photography for the first time experienced it. And mm. of course, he's not like your average person, right? He is um, extremely elite. He is unlike, as you said, he's just this unique figure. He's unlike anybody else. But he and his diary entries uh, about being photographed, uh, having daguerreotypes, which were the first popular form of photography in the United States, having daguerreotypes made of himself, his chronicles of that really tell us a lot about how people thought about portraiture, how people thought about what presidents and, and elite figures, especially elite white men should look like. And, you know, the news from Adams was that he was not really that much of a fan <laughs> of photography. He didn't like the way photographs made him look. Um, he said they were too true uh, to the original, right? Which means huh. that, you know, anytime we look at a portrait of ourselves or a selfie, we're like, oh, do I really look like that? You know, that was Adams's response, too. But he kept going back and getting photographed. He got invited by painters to be photographed so that they could Essentially, I mean, you have to kind of assume that they think, okay, he's really old. He's probably not going to be around much longer. If I want to have a portrait of him that's more or less from life, I should probably ask him to have a photograph made and send it to me. So sometimes that's why he went to get photographed. Okay. But what became really interesting to me was, you know, how he, as someone who really embraced technology and who liked science, you know, he helped to found the Smithsonian, you know, he didn't shy away from what we might call new media. But he really, he really questioned whether a photograph, because of its closeness to reality, could really depict the character of a man the way that he thought it should. Okay. And, and that is one of the kind of themes that plays out in his diary. Interesting. Yeah, I, I see him. I mean, he, he was very much a man of science, but he also had aspirations to be a poet. And he very much loved the arts. So it's, it's this kind of weird... Is, is a painting, it's art, and a photograph is maybe more science. And, and what, how do you really capture a person? And those are very interesting questions. Yeah. And he says, you know, at one point later in life, he's kind of reflecting on a, a, a daguerreotype of himself that was made and the experience of sitting for it. And, and he says something like, this image is just not suitable for the transmission of one's memory to the next age. So mm -hmm. the other thing that Adams was really interested in was legacy and his legacy. And, you know, he's somebody who was one of the most visually represented people of his time. Again, he's this elite figure. He's literally a child of the American Revolution. You know, he's had this very long career doing essentially every job practically in the federal government, right? So he is a well-known person. He's, he's a former president. He's an elite figure. He knows that he is going to be studied, uh, be viewed, be talked about. And he sat for portraits and busts and all kinds of other images throughout his life. And so he really, he got it. Like he, because of the interest in the arts, because of his understanding of the importance of legacy, he got it. And for him at that early period of photography, he just didn't think that photography, you know, could, um, could do it. You talked about how he was a, a kind of a gateway to maybe contemporary thoughts about photography, or at least the experience of being photographed. 
what were the the more contemporary thoughts? Like what did other people maybe who weren't so elite or weren't um, like John Quincy Adams think about the new media? It's really interesting when you read Adams's accounts of going to get daguerreotyped, especially the first couple of visits, he's trying to figure out what this is. <laughs> he's mm-hmm. he's um, employing analogies to things that would have been a part of his experience. And that's something that a lot of people did in the period. So in that way, he's very similar to the way other people experience photography. So for example, when he first goes to be photographed in 1842 in Boston, he, you know, says, you know, they put me in a, a kind of round house, like a, you know, like a greenhouse with, with windows, right? And, and basically they've put him in a studio with lots of windows so that light can come in because you need a lot, a lot of light to make these early photographs. So he's making analogies to things in his experience, a greenhouse, right? And he refers to the camera as a telescope, right? So he would have been familiar with the precursors to the camera, but for him, that big lens pointed suggests to him another scientific instrument uh, of the telescope. So a lot of people were invested in essentially these same kinds of analogies. Like they're trying to figure out what this is and why it's important. What I think is distinctive about Adams because of his elite status is that he, um, I think he fails to see, or maybe he's not interested in seeing the democratic capacities for photography. So, um, Frederick Douglass, the famous African-American orator and activist, um, also was very into photography. He gave lectures about photography later in his career in the later 19th century. And he was photographed often. He went to the photographers very early on, starting in the 1840s himself. And Douglass understood that photography was a democratic art in that you didn't have to pay a portrait painter lots of money, Mm. right? You didn't have to have a sitting. How many people could ever afford to do that, right? And so I think what people came to see pretty quickly and what Adams maybe was not as interested in was the way that photography was going to allow regular people, you know, quote unquote, to be able to see themselves. You know, Adams saw himself in literally every image ever made of him, which was dozens and dozens. The other way that Adams is really similar to other people is he just physically fails. Like he can't keep (laughs) his eyes open long enough to sit for an exposure of some of these early images. And exposure times were, um, weren't as long as I think sometimes people think. Like, you didn't have to sit there for minutes and minutes and minutes. But you had to sit there for what was a long time without blinking or moving in any way. And so when Adams goes for his first sitting in 1842, he, he says all of the pictures failed. They tried several times and they all oh. failed. The sentence he says is, I dozed and the picture was asleep. So in other words, he couldn't keep his eyes open. And therefore, he looked like his eyes were shut in the photo. So that's a common thing, right? So the failure of photography is something that a lot of people experience, especially in that early period where where people were just kind of lucky to get any image at all, much less turn it into something artful. With these early photographs, how did people view them? Because with a daguerreotype, that's like a one and done. You've got just one copy imprinted there. How did people react to seeing them? And where did they go to, to see this new thing? 
Yeah, you would have to go to a place where they were being displayed if you didn't, for example, have your own a daguerreotype of yourself that you could look at. So you could go to a gallery. And that was the other reason why Adams and other elites were approached by photographers, uh, right? It's kind of like, hey, if you come and sit with me, I'll give you a freebie. And then I can tell everyone that you sat for me and I can display your image and that will help me get more business, right? So it's a kind of business strategy to, to invite these famous mm. people to your studio as well. So you could, you would go there. Um, early on, there were demonstrations of how to make daguerreotypes that would be just held like in an auditorium or a theater in the big cities, especially in the East. And then if you were lucky enough to, you know, have a daguerreotype made of yourself or of a loved one or a family member, it was a really intimate experience because especially for the, for the daguerreotypes that are smaller, let's say roughly the size of a smartphone in your hand. Um, you know, they come in a case and you, you were having a very intimate experience looking at that image. Mm. And because, as you said, it's a one of a kind image, there's only the one. <laughs> um, it's also imprinted on glass and coated with chemicals in such a way that it's actually a mirror. Mm. So when you open a daguerreotype, you see yourself <laughs> in the image along with the other person. And so there's this very kind of interesting, um, both aesthetic and also kind of phenomenological or, you know, this kind of uh, spiritual interaction between the viewer of a daguerreotype and the subject of the photograph. And that goes away pretty quickly when other kinds of photography take over and it becomes more of a mass medium. It just reminds me of sometimes when I catch my own reflection in my iPhone. It's like, this is what I look like when I've been staring at a phone for 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You mentioned like the spiritual connection. We did an episode last season about um, a little bit about spiritualism and, and there's massive 400 page spiritualist biography or autobiography of John Quincy Adams written a few years after he died, in which a medium channeled him. And um, there was very much a theme of electricity. And he was shown in heaven, I think by John Hancock, how to use electricity to um, manipulate people so that he could communicate and it, it's very interesting how new technology melded with the idea of uh, spirituality and the unknown. And I know that photography was a big part of that as well. Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. And, you know, spiritualism is on the rise in the United States around the same time that early photography is taking off. You know, they're kind of overlapping each other pre-Civil War. And then once you get to the Civil War period, uh, you get the rise of the spirit photographer, right? And so that figure becomes a literal mechanism for reuniting you visually with your, you know, your dead baby or your son who died in the war, right? And, and people seek out, you know, so-called spirit photographs because they want to have that, you know, they're, they're kind of schooled in spiritualism and that idea of having a kind of connection to those that we've lost, to the other world, to the other side. But the photography part comes in where photographers could essentially manipulate the photographic experience to make those loved ones appear. <laughs> and so it becomes this kind of interesting public debate, you know, especially in the period right after or during and after the Civil War, where photographers uh, who are not practicing this are looking at the ones who are most famously a guy named William Mumler. And they're saying, like, hey, you're just making us look like charlatans. You're, you're exploiting the grief of sad mothers. You're doing these terrible things. And Mumler and the other photographers, right, are saying, hey, this is real. 
You know, my wife is a medium, she touches the camera, these things happen, and then we get these images. So it becomes this really interesting thing. And I love that idea of the of the spiritualist biography um, of Adams, because it really highlights the extent to which, you know, we tend to think of spiritualism as something that would be separate from science. But in that time, science was really important to a lot of those narratives about spiritualism, um, you know, telekinesis, electricity, right, apparition, all of that, people were really deeply invested in the idea that you could explain it. I think of I mean, one of my favorite photographs of a president and photograph is kind of in quotes is uh, Mary Todd Lincoln going, I think, to William Mumler. And you see you see her, you see Mary Lincoln sitting there and you see like the kind of ghostly figure of Abraham Lincoln standing beside her with his hands on, on her shoulders. When you look at that, like what do you what do you think when you look at that? Yeah, there's so many interesting things about that image because it was made by William Mumler. It was made in 1872. And the, the story is that Mrs. Lincoln went to him under a, a false name. She called herself something like Mrs. Tyndall or Mrs. Tydall. And, um, but accounts by Mumler and his employees say, well, we saw the spirit of Lincoln with her. And so we saw right away through her ruse. We knew who it was. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think a number of things, a lot of people look at that image and see what they believe to be Mary Todd Lincoln's mental illness. Right? Mm. Like, why would, would she want to seek this out? Were they just placating this, you know, poor, sad, sick woman? Um, I really read it more in the context of how people manage grief and how people yeah. want to have some kind of a connection to the people they've lost. It, it, you know, in my view, it's not all that different from, you know, having a picture of my father who passed away many years ago on my desk at work, you know? And so, so there's that component. But the other part that's really interesting to me is that in 1872, that's a few years after Mumler uh, was actually on trial in New York City for practicing spirit mm. photography. And at that trial, P.T. Barnum, of all people, who is like literally the charlatan of charlatans, right? And he was super proud of it and, and always very ironic about it. Barnum is brought to the trial to testify. Basically, there's a sting operation because the photographer's in New York City. He's now, Mumbler's now in New York City. They say, oh, um, you know, we don't want this guy doing this anymore. So we're going to like, you know, we're going to set him up. Well, did they see it like as, as fraud? Is that what they thought he was? Yeah, yeah. Committing? And they, they, yeah. And they thought that that there were kind of professional ideals that he was violating by being mm. by doing this, right. And he was charging, he was also making a lot of money. So he was charging, you know, multiple times for an image more than what they would or could charge for theirs that were not, you know, the so called spirit photographs. So he gets arrested, there's a trial, Barnum is called to testify for uh, the prosecution, basically, as a way to say, well, you're kind of a master of um, hokum, you're a master of um, humbug, as Barnum coined the term. So you should, of all people, you should know how he did this. So what are the different ways one could do this? And so all of this comes back to Lincoln, because Barnum actually poses for a photographer who says, I'm going to purposely make a spirit photograph of P.T. Barnum. And he, he inserts Lincoln into the image. Oh, wow. And so uh, Lincoln is kind of hovering over Barnum. And Barnum says, you know, yeah, Lincoln appeared in this photo. And you know, I didn't feel that he was present at all. So I don't know how he got there. And then Mumler says, look, it's true that people can fake it, but I don't fake it. 
So in the end, the trial, essentially, the, the judge basically says, look, if people want to be fooled by whatever, like, we don't, we can't stop them. We can't legislate that. So when I look at the Mary Todd Lincoln photo in the context of, you know, she's going to a guy who's kind of the well-known inventor practitioner of spirit photography, she's clearly going to him for a reason. But she's also going to him knowing that, you know, he's been called a fraud, uh, he has denied it. So there's still this kind of question mark, probably for her of is this real or not? And um, I'm going to go anyway, regardless, right? Because, you know, she has, I think, probably this deep need to do that. So yeah, it's really interesting. And, and the whole thing about spirit photography and those images of Lincoln points to one of the things why one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book, which is that the relationship between photography and presidents is about so much more than pictures of presidents. Yeah. Talking about early presidents and the the kind of power of photography, there is a daguerreotype of William Henry Harrison that I swear I, I could look at it all day and not believe the official story about it. This looks like a real photograph, but apparently, uh, according to the experts and the provenance and everything, it's a photograph of a painting of him. Yeah. And I've seen the painting I look at them side by side and I'm still like, I, I can't, I can't believe what's happening here. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like was, it was so good at the time. I'm curious if people were fooled or if it's just me. Yeah, I think this is actually a point. Yeah, this is a great trivia question <laughs> that um, sometimes people lose uh, because they've seen this image. Um, and, and I had to go back and dig into lots of different sources as I was starting the book, for sure, to try to figure out, like, okay, what is this William Henry Harrison thing, right? Um, the first thing I could say is that it was very common to make daguerreotypes of paintings. In fact, one of the really fun, initially surprising things about my book research was how George Washington figured really prominently in the early history of photography because people kept making daguerreotypes of his paintings and busts. Mm. And so it was kind of a way to keep somebody alive or to bring someone into the photographic era in the case of Washington. And because he's the most important American in the 19th century, uh, in terms of the memory of him as a founder, they photographed Washington. So, so that was a practice that was common. It was a way for photographers to show their skill and to also make images that could theoretically be viewed by the public in a way that the original painting might not be able to in all cases. So my understanding of the Harrison painting is that at some point it was, the, the argument is it was photographed by a studio in Boston called Southworth and Hawes, which were by the beginning of the 1850s, like the premier really, really skilled uh, daguerreotypists. And so probably one of the ways that they have determined that it's a daguerreotype of a painting, as opposed to the painting being based on an earlier daguerreotype, is because of the literal physical materiality of the makeup of the daguerreotype. So the glass that it was printed on, um, the mat that was used... There was another, there's a copy daguerreotype. <laughs> this is going to get a little circular, so I'm going to I'm gonna say this and try not to be confusing. Oh, I'm used to circular things when I dig yeah, into stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you'll like this. You'll like this then. So uh, a similar daguerreotype is made by Southworth and Hawes. It's also in the Metropolitan Museum of Arts collection. And the Adams image is a copy of a daguerreotype. So you could also okay. take a daguerreotype of a daguerreotype. And 
it was determined that that was the case rather than the original daguerreotype, which would have been made much earlier because of all of these other material features. You know, again, the glass, the case, all of these other things that would be pieces of the daguerreotype process mm. that would that were dated later that wouldn't have been available to the until the 1850s. Okay. So so my guess, although I can't say for sure, but my guess is that part of the reasoning behind the official certainty that this is a daguerreotype of a painting um, that was made in 1850, long after Harrison has died, is because of some of those features. So because daguerreotypes, you know, again, they're objects, right? So you can date all of these other things that are happening. The other thing that is kind of interesting to me about the whole conversation is that we do know that Harrison sat for a daguerreotype um, yeah. at some point, I think right before his inauguration. And then of course, right before he died because he dropped dead so quickly. So I think that seeds the narrative to a certain extent as well. The other thing is it also kind of highlights the artistry of photography, right? So the things that Adams was getting, you know, was frustrated by in the early 1840s, um, you can look at some of the images, uh, the original photographs of people that Southworth and Haas and others were making in, in the 1850s, and you can look at the images of art that they were creating. And they're pretty credible. I mean, that, that daguerreotype of the painting is beautiful. I mean, it, it, <laughs> the, the way the shadows work and it, it kind of just brings it to life in a way. And you look at the painting and you can see there's, there's detail to the complexion. And, and I'm sure if you were standing in front of it, you might see more. But oh my goodness, it, it just, it takes that and, and gives it life. Yeah. It, it shows you the power of, of even pretty early photography. Yeah. And you know, and if you ever get a chance, I mean, you can look on YouTube and see just if you just Google, like, what does a daguerreotype look like? You can find these little short videos of people tilting them and moving them around. They're very ghostly. Mm. The the image appears and disappears. And so... um there's kind of that component too that the daguerreotype has this again almost kind of spiritual richness to it that um, later photographs you know of presidents or anybody else just don't have. Yeah, definitely. Like I was kind of going down this rabbit hole um, not too long ago, and I ended up joining a, a Facebook group of, of daguerreotype collectors and experts, and yeah. I posed that question to them. I'm like, is there any way um, the experts could be wrong? Like, look at these two things, and it was almost divided fifty fifty by people who were yeah. like, no way. If you look at that. Like a painting could never capture that nuance of his hair, and that's different. And it's so amazing that this this photograph from 1850 is still sparking uh, discussion so much later. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's also it also what strikes me too is the extent to which we love the question. Mm-hmm. You know, we love that idea of um, of debating it, right? Debating the realism debating the the question. And so when I started doing some work on Lincoln several years ago, I published one article on a photograph of Lincoln. And it had nothing to do with authenticating. I mean, I'm not someone who can authenticate a photograph. I don't have that training, right? But I started occasionally over the years getting weird emails from people who would say, I bought this on eBay. And I think it's a picture of Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln, you know, And then I chatted with folks on my campus where we have a library devoted to Abraham Lincoln because we're the University of Illinois. And they were like, oh, my gosh, we go on. Yeah, we go on eBay every day and we see people claiming that photographs are this or that. And so there is also this kind of really interesting, especially for for figures like Lincoln, right? So iconic. There's this desire to be like, what if I have that picture? And, you know, with Adams, 
there actually was that moment not that long ago. So when I started doing the research for this book, I went to the National Portrait Gallery, and I actually got to hold and study what in 2015 was the oldest existing photograph of a president, which was a daguerreotype of Adams made in upstate New York in August, 1843. It's not a great picture. He didn't like it. Um, (laughs) I'll about that in his diary. Um, And then a year later, it, it emerges publicly that a guy has, I mean, it's the classic story. A guy has found a daguerreotype in a drawer of his parents or grandparents' house, cleaning out the old folks' house. And it turns out after some investigation to be what we now know as the oldest existing photograph of, of a president. It's an image of John Quincy Adams made like six months earlier. And so the idea that the oldest images in my project could change in the 20, you know, early 21st century is kind of amazing, but it also yeah. points to that kind of desire, right? And I always say to people, it's like, you got to be careful what you throw out. You know, if you find old photographs, spend a little bit of time because um, you never really know what you have. <laughs> Same with old letters and things that are sometimes just found in a, a family's attic yeah. or a collection. Um, so looking beyond just the, you know, the first few presidents that we talked about, in your book, you kind of talk about how different presidents have a different kind of relationship with photography. Is there a single photo of a, of a president that you think might have been the most helpful or impactful to their career or trajectory? There's a photo of Lincoln made before he becomes president called the Cooper Union photograph. Mm. And it was made by Matthew Brady, one of the most important photographers of that period. And it was made essentially to commemorate Lincoln's speech at the Cooper Union in February 1860. And he's kind of this unknown, right? He's this rough Western frontier guy, all these people in the East are like, who is this guy? Mm. And he gives a speech, the speech becomes famous but then the uh, engravings of the photograph, um, because you still couldn't print an actual photograph in a newspaper or magazine at this point, engravings um, get put on when he, Lincoln's nominated, Harper's uh, Weekly puts uh, a version of the image on its cover, and then they add things to it. They embellish the photograph by engraving it with like buffalo in the background huh. to kind of signal his westernness, you know. I'm not sure how many buffalo were actually roaming in Springfield, Illinois in the 1860. Probably not very many, (laughs) right? But again, these little icons of Western frontierness. And then when Lincoln wins that fall, Harper's puts it uh, on its cover again. And Harper's Weekly is very, very important periodical of the period for for middle and upper class readers. So um, when he wins, they put it on the cover again. and, And Lincoln very famously said, uh, you know, Mr. Brady and Cooper Union made me president. And mm-hmm. so what he meant by that was, you know, I gave the speech, but Brady's photograph kind of cemented that. And then I think more generally, not not necessarily one photo, but the Obama White House's choice to put the official photographs they were making at the White House online, basically in real time, um, not all of them, of course, but many of them, more than 6,000 of them across Obama's two terms. Their choice to do that really gave Obama a, a different kind of space to be presented to Americans. So, you know, as the first black president, he is both hugely celebrated and also there's all kinds of, during the campaign in 2008, all kinds of racist representations hmm. circulating around on the internet. You don't have to do much Googling to find them still today. And so the choice to kind of make 
you know, seemingly behind the scenes photos of the president available via social media and to share them very widely um, was hugely successful. And it worked because of the skill of the White House photographers at really capturing things about Obama that people really care about. Like people want to know their president is an active leader. They want to know that their president is commander in chief, but they also want to think of their president as a person, right? Who likes babies mm -hmm. and pets his dog and hugs his wife. And so all of those things, um, that group of photographs did. And, and, and it really, I think has set the stage for all presidents who come after they'll either live up or down to that, <laughs> to that visual record. Yeah. So on the converse of, of most helpful photograph, who do you think has been most hurt? Or is there a, a, a single photo or a couple that you can think of that were really um, whatever president associated just kind of wishes they never got out? Uh, my main um, candidate for that would be George W. Bush, and the, the photo op that he participated in in 2005, right in the midst of the crisis of Hurricane Katrina. Mm. So um, uh, you may remember there were photographs of him that circulated um, where they, they essentially did a flyover of New Orleans and they didn't land. And it's pictures of Bush essentially looking out the window of Air Force One down on the city of New Orleans. And, um, Without context, you could look at that and go, oh, well, you know, he's the president, the crisis was still happening, he couldn't land. But but those photographs emerged in a context where the federal government's response was just universally excoriated as completely mm. ineffectual. People were dying, I mean, literally, right, during those, those um, uh, days uh, after the hurricane and then the breaching of the levee. And so Bush just came off looking callous looking above it all or outside of it all, um, looking disinterested. And one of the ways you can tell it's, a, it's, it's um, a not helpful image for his legacy is that he has since talked about how he never should have sat for that photo op. <laughs> so like he's literally gone on the record saying, yeah, I shouldn't have done that uh, because it made me look like I didn't care. Yeah. And, you know, you could definitely make arguments and many people have made arguments uh, that they didn't care enough and that they should have done more and that the response was poor. And that's why Bush's, you know, uh, one of the reasons why Bush's second term, you know, was uh, very unpopular. But for Bush himself, it's clear that he also um, does not see that as a as certainly a visual high point for him. Yeah. Um, and I think about that. I think about the mission accomplished photo behind him, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. Pretty photogenic president, but if, yeah, the photo's definitely worth more than a thousand words when it comes to telling a story. Yeah, and a photo like that, I mean, it, news photography can really condense a number of things about an issue or an event into one frame. And that did a lot of condensing in a pretty negative way for Bush. Um, and, and also really highlighted, um, you know, people's feelings about the response. Um. You kind of talk about Obama as, I mean, it seemed like he was a master of the candid photo, or at least photos that, that seemed candid. Uh, these little moments, you know, with Michelle in, in the elevator um, or interacting with kids. Did some presidents have more of a problem with candid photographs? Yeah, I have. Um, the whole idea of candid photography itself is really interesting. And I have a, a chapter in the book that talks about that specifically beginning in the late 19th century, but definitely moving into like the 1920s and 1930s, 
what happens is you get photography developing technologically so that you have cameras that are really portable and I can run around and take pictures of people on the street and they don't know that I'm hmm. photographing them. And so uh, the early on, these folks were called camera fiends. So kind of like the way we think about paparazzi now, but the camera fiend was usually a man photographing women without their knowledge you know, mm. on the public street. Very, very inappropriate. By the time we get to the 1920s and early 1930s, the 35 millimeter camera and some of its equivalents, uh, smaller cameras, portable cameras, those appear and you don't need a flash to use them indoors. Um, you know, they have really fast shutter speeds. So you can take a lot of pictures quickly in low light. And because of that, people start photographing political figures a little bit differently. So they might go to a diplomatic meeting and instead of making a formal portrait, you know, of all the leaders kind of stiffly standing around, they might go into the hotel bar and photograph them all sitting around a table smoking cigars and, you know, planning their government's future. And so what happens is that some people, some politicians, some presidents really like this because they feel like it makes them look like a real person. They mm. feel like it makes them look very um, active and engaged and it gives them a good political image and others don't really do very well. And one of the folks that I talk about in the book is Herbert Hoover, who kind of never got the memo <laughs> about the importance of being candid. And then I talk about a photo that was made of him without his knowledge. That's a truly candid photo that was shot at a White House correspondence dinner. You know, they used to have, they still have this. It used to be stag, which meant all men. And it was also supposed to not have any cameras or uh, official journalists um, doing work. But a photographer named Eric Solomon, um, who was sort of famous for his candid photographs, put a camera in a flower pot and without Hoover mm -hmm. noticing it, took a picture of Hoover. And what I love about the picture is it's actually a great picture of Hoover. And there are very, very few great pictures of Herbert Hoover. <laughs> so the irony that he, when, when he was supposed to be candid, you know, when he was supposed to be photographed meeting world leaders and pretending like he didn't see the camera, he couldn't do it very well. Mm. But when there's an actual candid photo, it's actually a pretty good photo. Um, so good that Fortune magazine actually included it in an article in 1932 during the election about why um, why Hoover should be reelected. Fortune was uh, very pro Hoover. So, mm -hmm. you know, it becomes this kind of funny dance where presidents want to be in control of their image, but increasingly they can't because of the way photography evolves. And now, of course, we're in a world of social media where that's even more challenging to them. But at the same time, if you do candid, if you perform candid well enough, which someone like Obama does, and uh, another president who who was really skilled at kind of understanding what candid was about was Lyndon Johnson. Mm. Uh, if you do that well, you can have a really positive political image out there, you know, where people really at least get to see more of who you probably are in real life. It's yeah, it's hard not to look at the photograph of LBJ and his dog like howling together. Um, with yes. like it's and and not you know just think what a what a guy yeah and that's the power of those moments yeah 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 and um, the the other famous one is him showing reporters his uh, scar from his gallbladder <laughs> surgery or his appendix surgery and and people were just like oh this is just so inappropriate but it was very Johnson yeah I mean, it was kind of how he was and so his White House photographer was uh, a guy named um, uh, Yoichi Okamoto he went by Oki. And um, he he was kind of the role model for Pete Souza photographing Obama. Pete Souza has said mm. that he wanted to create that kind of a visual record that would be really comprehensive 
but that would be one that gave you insight into kind of who the president is as a person. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's really the power of, that's what you want a photograph to be able to do. And I see in those early days, it, it sounds like John Quincy Adams just didn't think it cut it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, wh- I want to ask, uh, where can listeners find uh, find you or your work online? Or Probably the easiest place is just to go to my website, carafinnegan.com. And there's information about the book, um, links to the webcast I mentioned, and, and uh, some other stuff about me and my work. Well, great. Thank you so much. This was such a fun conversation digging into the the kind of power of photography and how the presidents played into that. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I love your podcast. And it's been um, it's fun to be a part of it now. Oh, thank you. Oh, my goodness. She was so fantastic. It was so much fun to talk to her. Did you make friends with these people? Like, can we have them for dinner? Because <laughs> I just want to hang out. I mean, they're they're physically, geographically quite far away. But yeah, yeah. Let's have them over. I really love how she breaks down the connection between science and spirituality as well. Yeah. With photography and how they're connected, especially with loss and spirits and ghosts how the image once the photo was taken would then disappear or how when you opened up the print later you could see a reflection of yourself and so it became this intimate moment when you're looking at a photograph it kind of harbors that same feeling of like peering into a locket you know opening Mm. it up and peering it in which in a way is a very intimate moment when you're looking into someone's locket or looking into your own locket it kind of captures that possibly that same feeling Yeah. And we still, I mean, talking about like technology and spiritualism mixed with technology, Mm -hmm. you look at shows like like Ghost Hunters or whatever, where they're using like EMFs and using fancy things and trying to explain these things just beyond our perception scientifically. And just knowing that that's been there from the start. Yeah, that's so cool. That isn't a new thing. Mm -mm. I really appreciated this interview. I thought you did a great job again. And we'll have to see if I'm part of any of these interviews. I would I don't love think, for you to be part of some. I don't really feel like I have a place there. I just want to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to hang out. I don't, you know? No, I get it. That's how I feel too. I just, we need to invite them over for dinner, maybe all at once. Wouldn't that be amazing? We could a have a historian, historian and, dinner. And authors and, yeah. I could host. That sounds great. That sounds really great. We could have Federalist wine. There you go. We could take some pictures, (laughs) some (laughs) candid photos. There you go. Anyway, thank you very much, Dr. Kara Finnegan, for that amazing interview. I really, really enjoyed it. And you can see the whole unedited video of the interview. Anyone can? If they join our Patreon. Oh, so patrons can see the unedited version. All these photos that we talked about should be up in our show notes at plodpod.com. There you can also find a link to our Facebook page. Reach out and touch us. There's also a link to our merch store up there. Uh, we don't merch, have any... I'm so excited. Yes, we don't have any Swamp Rabbit shirts up there yet, but oh, uh, it's never too late. That's not too late. No. So thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're digging into one of the biggest media sensations of the 19th century. Really? It's a doozy. Do I know of it? I think you know of it, but... Media sensation. You may not have heard what I'm going to say. Oh, okay. So if you like what you heard, please share the love. Thank you for plotting along with us. Thank you for plotting. Birds.